By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, the big picture, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from Moody's analysts across the globe on the key credit and economic issues affecting the fixed income markets. I'm Sarah Carlson, a senior vice president in Moody's Sovereign Risk Group based in Paris, and I'm your host for this episode. Now, for years, we've been talking about the changes to the ways in which our energy will be supplied as a result of the response to climate change. But on the 24th of February, this already critical issue took on an even more urgent importance when Russia invaded Ukraine, which has really pushed the issue of energy security to the top of the policy agenda. Now, I'm delighted to have two Moody's managing directors with me today to talk about this intersection of climate policy and the security of energy provision in Europe. Please welcome Rahul Ghosh, uh, who leads our ESG research and outreach. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. And Doug Seegers, who leads our infrastructure finance franchise in Europe. Thanks, Sarah. Glad to be here. Now, Rahul, I'd like to start with making sure we all get our definitions right. Can you talk about what decarbonization actually means? Well, thanks, Sarah, and wonderful to be here today. Decarbonization literally means the reduction of carbon. But of course, its meaning and its significance really differs from one use to another. Context really matters. I think from a macroeconomic perspective, it's really talking about how do we transition to an economy that is less carbon intensive? And it's often associated with a long-term goal of creating a low-carbon or even a zero-carbon economy. Now, now why is this important? It's important because, uh, you know, as we've heard from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this is the global body, uh, preeminent body of scientists uh, that are looking at climate change issues. They tell us that we need to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, including carbon, Uh, by 43% by 2030 and get to essentially zero emissions by 2050. That's to limit the most extreme uh, dangerous effects of climate change. And so we're seeing governments really across the board look to reaffirm or even ramp up their commitments. And Europe has been very much at the heart of that. In fact, the European Commission announced a plan last year, uh, the Fit for 55 plan in July of uh, 2021, really looking to cut emissions by 55% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. And of course, uh, as I'm sure Doug will expand upon at the heart of that strategy uh, is the electrification of of Europe's economy. And Doug, can you talk a little bit about that? Because one of the responses to decarbonization that I always read is electrify everything. How realistic is that? What in practice does that mean? In practice, it means that we look at the ways that we use energy now and we we try to turn all of those uses into electrical sources so instead of uh instead of driving cars 
powered by petrol or diesel. We, we have electric cars. Uh, and you can carry that that on. We can we can take our home heating and we can t- turn that into baseboard and electric underfloor heating instead of radiators and, and that sort of thing. But what that means in practical terms uh, is a couple of things. Um, one, you have to look at the generation side. And so it's no good electrifying everything if you're going to run the electricity off of coal and, and gas. Uh, and the other side is you have to look at reinforcing the grid because we have a grid, uh, the power distribution network that is set up for the current way we use electricity, not powering everything by electricity. So all that means that you've got quite a lot of cost capital investment, a lot of planning works and a lot of coordination in the European context to make all that work. Now, Rahul, you already talked a bit about um, some of the carbon reduction targets that Europe, for example, has adopted. Given what Doug's just said, how realistic are some of these targets? You know, I think it really depends on on, on how it's going to be implemented and whether uh, you know some of those technologies are, are available at scale. Now, the good news is I think there are certain parts uh, of the EU's plans that are eminently achievable to, to, today. If we think about um, you know, solar and wind power at scale, those solutions are available. Energy efficiency improvements for buildings, for instance, is going to be a significant area of focus. And, and again, with potentially some changes in uh, consumer behavior and consumer choices can, uh, are feasible. I think some of the challenges are around what we call the hard to abate sectors. So sectors where it is very difficult to reduce uh, uh, the carbon emissions footprint. There we're talking about, um, particularly in industrial uses, uh, steel, cement. And there, I think one of the challenges is going to be around implementation. How do we get the technology that we need? There's a lot of talk around green hydrogen uh, or carbon capture and storage. How do we get these technologies at scale to really allow um, system-wide change and decarbonisation? Rahul, you've touched on some of these longer-term questions like technology, and I want to come back to those in, in a few minutes. But before we do, I'd like to talk about some of the, the shorter term issues, because if I look at the policy response to rising energy prices that we've seen so far in Europe, the main priority has been to preserve household purchasing power rather than to use the price function to try to encourage changes to consumption patterns. Is that realistic? And are there consequences to that? And I suppose the big question to me is, is this a missed opportunity to really take advantage of this moment to boost the sustainability of energy consumption? Yeah, it's it's an excellent question, Sarah. And I think the crux of the matter now is that the policy priority has shifted to to the short-term issue of energy security and, and affordability as well. We look at uh, as you know, Sarah, EU inflation right now running at you know, 7.5% year and year. Energy prices have skyrocketed by 45%. Consumers are feeling uh, the pinch in their purse strings. And it's understandable that the political focus may uh, shift to supporting consumers um, at this moment in time. And of course, it's worth remembering that uh, the Russian-Ukraine military conflict has exacerbated some of these issues, but they've been there from uh, uh, since the, uh, the the sort of pandemic times as well in terms of some of the supply crunch uh, that we're seeing. Now, the disruption to natural gas supplies in particular um, is an issue for the European economy. It's an important fuel uh, for the continent's electricity generation, but also a critical heating fuel for households, especially in the winter months, and it's difficult to replace at short notice. 
So I do think the short-term calculus has, has changed. And what it really shows us, uh, Sarah, is that decarbonization is unlikely to be a smooth process. It's like unlikely to be a linear process. And there are going to be uh, political priorities that take precedent at different points. I think, too, you've got, the, you've got to look at this country by country because it is very different in different countries, uh, particularly when you're talking about the acute situation uh, that we've got. Uh, and we, you know, we can think back about, um, about what kind of fuel supplies we use. And if you just look at the simple question of how much gas is used and where does it come from, you have everything from... Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Latvia that import 95 to 100% of their gas from Russia, down to Spain, which imports less than 10% of its gas from Russia. Um, and then even within that calculus, you have to think about how much gas you use in the first place, uh, because different countries are on very different energy supply um, models from the, the Nordics with their heavy hydro with virtually no gas uh, usage and France with its 70% nuclear fuel, um, all the way down to Eastern European countries, which are very heavily into hydrocarbons, coal and, and gas. So it's not a one size fits all kind of situation. And, and Doug, I was just, just adding to that, I think, you know, the ability of a country to sort of quickly replace uh, energy deliveries that it might uh, receive from from Russia, particularly gas, again, is going to be an important differentiator too. You know, how easy is it to uh, you know shift gas supplies away from Russian pipelines and uh, uh, liquefied natural gas imports may not be a viable solution for some. Um, so geography also matters in this in this regard as well. So there's many different. Uh, considerations that come into really thinking about the overall implications for European uh, for Europe's economy. So, if renewables aren't the way out of the current crisis, you know, what is? I'm thinking about particularly this recurrent fear that that we have that even if Russian gas isn't sanctioned by Europe, that Russia could, of course, turn off the gas supplies uh, to Europe. We we obviously saw. That, that news recently from uh, Gazprom's actions in Poland and Bulgaria. So- well, in the very short term, if you're talking about um, a Russian cutoff of gas that's, that's not related to, uh, to Western sanctions, it's really a question of finding the power from somewhere else as a temporary matter. Interconnection can help. Europe is very interconnected and there are countries that are in power surpluses, but that can't go on for very long. And I'm afraid that the real answer is you have to radically cut consumption as uh, has been discussed pretty widely in European political circles about contingency plans for shutting down industry uh, certain days of the week and that sort of thing. So that is a very dramatic outcome, but that is, I'm afraid, what the answer is for the very short term. Now, thinking about the longer term, Doug, how do you see changes in the source of energy provision coming out of this crisis? Is that going to be more discussion of renewables in some countries, they talk about nuclear. Yeah, I think uh, what you're going to see is uh, a continuation, um, as Rahul was, was talking about, of the commitments to decarbonization. And some European countries are much farther along than others, um, particularly the further east you go, the less less keen those countries have been on weaning themselves off of, of coal and, and gas. Um, and you may see some acceleration of policy decisions in those countries uh, towards towards renewables. Um, and some countries will go to nuclear. France, of course, is already heavily nuclear-based, about 70% of their um, 
of their energy generation is nuclear. The UK has recently announced its uh, renewed commitment to nuclear. Of course, um, the UK has um, one large nuclear facility under construction now due for commissioning in uh, a few years time and has already commissioned um, a, another large facility um, in the country. But then you also have countries like Germany and Austria that are politically dead set against nuclear. So those countries are going to remain dependent for base load on fossil fuels uh, until such time that technology comes to the rescue with uh, with better battery storage on a utility scale, but that is not anytime soon. Rahul, how does you know, some countries moving to more reliance on nuclear actually fit in with some of those climate targets you were talking about a few minutes ago? Yeah, nuclear is a, is a really interesting area from, a, from an ESG, an environmental, social and governance perspective. The EU has been uh, crafting uh, uh, an extensive taxonomy, a classification system of what it sees as sustainable activities, and nuclear has been proposed to be to, to be added here. But I, I think sustainable investors, actually investors more generally, still remain uh, unconvinced. Uh, nuclear projects uh, already have a, a pretty large track record of rampant cost escalations and delays. But from an ESG perspective, yes, nuclear from an you know, operationally uh, can be considered, you know, close to zero greenhouse gas emissions. But you have challenges around environmental and safety risks, many high profile examples uh, of, you know, issues with remediation and decontamination. You've also got the issue of disposal of nuclear waste. You've got um, impact of uranium mining that's needed uh, and a large amount of water consumption that's required for, 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 for cooling as well. So, it remains to be seen whether private investors will really pick up the baton when it comes to nuclear. And even on the state front, if you have state-funded nuclear um, or state-backed funding of nuclear, as uh, as has been developed um, either directly in the UK or indirectly through EDF in in, in France, uh, the lead times on new nuclear facilities are extremely long. Uh, you know, we are looking at a minimum of 15 years to get a full-scale conventional reactor um, through planning, through technology approval, through construction and commissioning. Uh, and into generation. And even the the newer technologies of small modular reactors uh, still require something on the order of five years from design approval to installation, even though they are essentially um, kit form, um, albeit very large kits. Uh, but still, even that technology is not an instant solution. Now, this is, of course, the Big Picture podcast. So I'd like both of you to take a step back and think we think about the big picture, we've mentioned a lot of individual country names. Doug, when it comes to the ability to cope with these changes in energy provision, and Rahul, with regard to the ability to meet targets, which countries are better positioned to be able to, to cope with this, this longer-term picture? The obvious contenders are the ones that are best placed, uh, and let's, let's differentiate between electricity production and electricity consumption and general energy consumption, because it's an important is an important distinction. Uh, you've got the Nordics, which produce most of their power from hydro. Uh, so they're, they're very well positioned. They also have uh, moved the farthest in terms of electrification of their economies with electric vehicle sales and the infrastructure required for that. Uh, 
moving moving on uh, on down the map, um, France is, is well positioned because of its nuclear, um, although it's been a bit of a laggard on, on renewables, and so it's got the, the issue of aging facilities. Um, Iberia has been very big uptakers of renewables, uh, both Portugal and Spain, so they're they're in good shape. At the at the other end, the Eastern European countries, uh, with their heavy dependence on hydrocarbons, um, and um, other than the Czech Republic, um, not much in the way of nuclear um, generation capacity, are probably not in very good shape. The the most interesting country um, is probably Germany, uh, which has um, the the situation that. 56% of its uh, electricity generation is um, already from renewables and nuclear, although the country you know, famously decided to cut off its nuclear capacity a number of years ago uh, following Fukushima. Um, but um, of the 20% that it generates from gas, half of that comes from Russia. So um, they are particularly exposed to the current situation, albeit not so much for power generation. Um, so. It is a it is a mixed pic, picture um, as you as you move across the continent. Rahul, maybe I'll just add to that, Sarah. But more from a sector perspective, one of the key pillars uh, of, of the EU's decarbonisation plan is increasing uh, the price of carbon through its emissions trading uh, system. So not just the price, but also the number of uh, sectors that will fall underneath uh, the emissions trading system as well. And so. For sectors, you know, beyond power generation, I think the, the key determinant here is going to be, well, to what extent can we pass on these additional costs to our customers through higher prices for goods and services? Some sectors, perhaps automakers, for instance, may be more successful at that. But we look at um, other sectors, I'm thinking airlines and shipping, where there are you know, few substitutes, they, they may be in a in a weaker position to be able to pass on some of those costs. And so there, there may be some financial risks associated with uh, decarbonisation over the long term. And that's another place where Germany is a, is a great example, because it said, you know, 56% of their power generation is from renewables and nuclear, but only 20% of their energy consumption is from renewables and nuclear. Uh, and the rest of that is what Roel's talking about. It's all the petrol and the diesel and the aviation fuel and the industrial processes that require the, the hydrocarbons. We've been alluding a few times to technological change. And this is one of the things that you often hear being held out there as being the great hope for how we'll be able to, to cope with climate change and yet not necessarily see disruptive change. Question to you both. Is technological innovation and change the answer? Is it realistic? In two words, Sarah, it depends, right? But I, I think in certain sectors, uh, you know, technology and investment are going to come hand in hand. Our corporate finance team at Moody's here talk about not a green revolution, but a green renovation wave, right? Where we're going to see just huge amounts uh, of investment to renovate and improve energy efficiency over the coming decades, particularly for buildings. And, you know, we could see around uh, you know, $275 billion of annual investment in building renovation going forward. And a lot of the technology needed to do that is is there. But when, when we think about other sectors, um, I, I talked about green hydrogen earlier. So this is producing hydrogen using renewable sources. Very expensive today. Hydrogen is a key input into many of the industrial processes that we need to fund growth and fund um, infrastructure investment. 
Uh, and until we get green hydrogen, for instance, at scale, I think uh, that's going to take you know quite a few years to implement. So there are risks associated with some of the technology assumptions needed for us to get to a, a to a zero carbon economy. Hydrogen is an interesting one, though, because we we have um, a lot of the infrastructure already in place. People don't think about it, but the gas transmission networks that cover Europe um, can be adapted, and there's a lot of investment research going into um, into the adaptation of those grids uh, for the eventual use of, of hydrogen, be it green hydrogen or um, or, or or blue hydrogen, to um, to essentially avoid the stranded assets, which is a cost to be avoided, uh, and to to use the hydrogen. But as Rahul says, that's a ways away. Uh, you have, as I mentioned earlier, the small modular nuclear reactors, which can cut the cost and time to deployment. Um, but the, the big thing that we really need is large-scale energy storage, because you cannot get away from the fact that renewables are intermittent, uh, whether you're talking about wind or solar, you always have to have the base load to deal with those. And right now the base load is fossil fuels and we need to have the base load uh, be nuclear or interconnection or battery storage. And right now only uh, nuclear and interconnection are really part of the picture and they're not enough. Right. So we're going to, to close the, the pod in the same way that we always do with a lightning round. And so question to you both is, what is one aspect of this topic that doesn't get as much attention as you think that it really deserves? Rahul, can we start with you? Yeah, sure, Sarah. I think one of the underlying narratives that we've seen through, through the recent energy crisis has been, uh, you know, it, hydrocarbons themselves come with geopolitical risks, right? And there is almost a sort of geopolitical imperative uh, for Europe to reduce its reliance uh, on hydrocarbons. Uh, now, that may well be the case, but also as we t- start to aggressively shift towards uh, a, you know, a lower hydrocarbons future for Europe, volatile raw material prices, supply chain v- vulnerabilities, they're not going to go away. They're simply going to shift. Uh, we could see challenges with you know securing supply of raw materials from uh, you know, copper to lithium and cobalt. Some of the metals are the uh, really crucial to, to electrification. So I think this idea of volatility in raw material prices, supply chain vulnerabilities, is likely to be an enduring feature. And Doug? If we accept that electrification is the key to decarbonization, we're also accepting that we're going to be connecting ourselves together through the electrical grids uh, more than we are now. And like the Internet of Things that brings heightened cybersecurity risks. Uh, This is more than theoretical. While the power networks are generally well protected uh, relative to say other businesses, uh, you can't get away from the fact that uh, quite recently, uh, Ukraine disclosed that uh, they had fended off a hacking attack from Russia and Russia had also um, attacked the Ukrainian grid in 2016. It's not just Russia and Ukraine, Uh, the, the European operating system for its power grid, although not the grid itself, uh, was attacked um, in 2020 uh, by state actors. So that is something that we're all going to have to address. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, but unfortunately, that's all the time we're going to have for today. Thank you very much to Doug and Rahul for coming on the pod. And thank you to you, our listeners. 
Don't forget to follow The Big Picture on your favorite podcast app, and please leave us a rating and review so that others can find the show. We will be back in your feed in a few weeks' time, but until then, this has been Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. <laughs>